what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It was early in 2008. There was a profoundly sad and troubling discovery of a man who had laid dead in his bed for more than a year. The efficiency of modern city life allowed this state of affairs to continue. His pension was paid directly into his bank and then his bank paid his rent. It could have gone on forever except the neighbours finally noticed something was wrong when the letterbox was just overflowing. It symbolises the end point of individualism, the lonely isolation of today's culture. There's something deeply disturbing about being left alone in death. Humans are not just part of the material world. Our physical bodies, they, they need to be disposed of appropriately, but our death needs to be mourned, needs to be grieved by somebody to die without even being noticed, to lie in death without the honour of a decent funeral is to reduce us to nothing more than a collection of atoms. But then that's the problem, isn't it? That's the problem of modern culture because nat naturalistic atheism has taught us that we are nothing more than a collection of atoms. I mean, the Bible doesn't deny that we're physical, we're material. You are dust and to dust you shall go. But the Bible says we're more than dust. We were created in the image of God. Denying God means losing our humanity. For the atheist, we're not created and certainly not created in the image of a God who doesn't exist. We're an accidental collection of atoms, a, a cleverer, more able collection than many of the other collections like animals or plants, but just a collection of atoms. We're not fundamentally different. We're certainly no different in purpose or moral value or meaning. Fortunately, such atheism has not yet overwhelmed our culture as it has other cultures at other times. Denying our humanity is too inhuman even for atheists in a post-Christian world. Treating the pandemic as a matter of herd immunity, allowing the old and the weak to die because to allow the feeble to die out so as to improve the quality of the human race is just too much for most people, even those who believe such things. Even atheists are outraged at the immoral, amoral consequences of their own beliefs. A culture overwhelmed by atheism would make life monstrous, meaningless and hideous. It would be monstrous as indicated in the writings of Nietzsche or Kafka, Dostoevsky or Ayn Rand. It would be, it would be meaningless as a play by Beckett or Pinter. It would be as hideous an existence 
as such as the atheist dictators of the 20th century, Pol Pot, Mao, Lenin, Stalin, whose lives meant the death of millions more than the pandemic has brought us. The Australian version of atheism is very soft and gentle, of course. It's individualism plus materialism, economic materialism, that is. We're not humans, we're not even citizens, we're consumers. Society is held together by economic activity and there's no common moral culture. If you can pay for it, you can have it. And if, you could, if it contributes to the economy, the government loves you. Without a common moral culture, tolerance has been distorted into relativism. We used to tolerate people with whom we disagreed, but now we agree with everybody. The demand is now acceptance, not tolerance. For there's no right, there's no wrong, there's just personal preference and everybody is to be included in the acceptance of everything. But when personal choice reigns, selfishness is king. The reign of the individual is the society of the selfish. Each person doing what they believe is right for them without deferring to anybody else and without deferring to the good of society as a whole. But the pandemic has brought, has caused us to stop and think. Is individualism good? When our houses are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and yet those occupying it are getting fewer and fewer and fewer, what, what, what is the point of what we're doing here? In 1906, the average household had 4.6 people. By 26, 100 years later, it was down to 2.5 people. But the size of the houses are almost twice as large as the families are half as small. Is individualism so good when 300 people die each year in New South Wales, lying undiscovered for more than seven days? Is individualism so wonderful? It's not that individualism is always bad. The Bible indeed teaches us to take individual responsibility and that we will be judged individually. Let me give you a great example of Christian individualism. In August 1527, nearly 500 years ago, the bubonic plague reached the town of Wittenberg. A bubonic plague was much, much worse than COVID, much more dangerous. It would routinely kill somewhere between 30, 90% of the people whom it affected. The elector of Saxony, he ordered Martin Luther and the other members of the university to leave the town, to leave the city. But Luther, the individual, chose to stay. And for months, the plague brought death to the city. But he remained. He remained to look after the sick and the dying. During it, he even wrote a 10,000-word pamphlet they used to work hard in those days, didn't have television. 
he wrote a 10,000 word pamphlet in the middle of it all entitled, Whether One May Flee from a Deadly Plague. It's easy to download and it's a terrific read. I'd encourage you to do it. It's very easy to get it off, off the net today and it's, it's marvellous because nearly all the advice he gave is exactly the same advice as our Prime Minister is giving today. It is fascinating how 500 years later we've really got the same kind of problem and the same kind of solutions. But enjoy the read because he's a man... Well, just listen to two of the quotes. God has created medicine and provided us with intelligence to guard and take good care of the body so that we can live in good health. He's a man of God. He believed in us being created in the image of God, being able to rule the world, being able to... He goes on to say, What would it avail you if all physicians and the entire world were at your service, but God was not present? Again, what would harm could overtake you if the whole world were to desert you and no physician would remain with you, but God would abide with you with his assurance? <laughs> he was a great man of God, was our Martin Luther, wasn't he? He saw the work of God in the middle of the pandemic. He also wrote of the importance of learning through God's word, how we are to live and how we are to die. He would be very pleased, I'm sure, if he were here today, that we would be turning to God's word in the middle of a plague because that's what he would do and that's what he encourages everybody to do. So let's turn. Turn to God's word, to our reading from James 4 that Monique just brought us, where James accuses his readers of being double-minded adulterers. And they're fighting and they're quarrelling amongst themselves over possessions. And even when they do finally remember to pray to God, they're still self-centred because they're, they're wanting God to give them stuff so that they might spend it on themselves. James calls it adultery in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's adultery. It's adultery because, as Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You cannot love God and money. He's not forbidding the enjoyment of creation, but the commitment to our fallen world order of materialism is totally inconsistent with our commitment to God. The problem isn't money, but the love of money. However, when that is said to people, it kind of lets most people off the hook, doesn't it? Because they say, and it's easy for me to say, look, I don't love my money. I just live my life in its pursuit. I just find my security in its possessions. I just indulge myself in my purchases. But I don't live for money. I don't love money. You see, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, says the prophet Jeremiah. We must understand our hearts. So James calls them double-minded in verse 8. For they want God and they want the world. And that's what James means about double-mindedness. In another way of saying they live in doubt. For doubt in the New Testament in James' writing is not an intellectual questioning, an intellectual problem. Doubt is a much more relational, moral problem of being two-minded, 
I want God and I want the world. I, want, I, I don't know which I, I want both. It's the desire to be a citizen of heaven and at the same time a citizen of this sinful world. The desire to be loved and valued and admired for our worldly success while we follow the crucified one. It doesn't make sense. As the Apostle John wrote in his first letter, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's the problem of arrogance again, as we heard in the first talk. The problem of pride and humility. James makes the point that they omit the spiritual dimension in verse 5. And they omit God's grace given to them in verse 6. Instead of humbling ourselves before God, we continue in the pride of life. We're to humble ourselves before God. We're to draw near to him. We're to cleanse ourselves of our double-mindedness. We're to weep and to mourn over our sinfulness. We should wait for God to exalt us rather than exalting ourselves. We shouldn't be measuring ourselves over against our brothers, judging each other rather than judging ourselves and serving each other. That is, forgetting of God and facing judgment is not only a communal failure, it's also an individual failure. It's open to you and to me as much as it is to our community and our society. But, but you say submitting to God, drawing near to God, humbling ourselves before God sounds a little abstract. What... what how do I practice it? How do I put it into practice? What am I supposed to do? Can you give any concrete examples of this? And we have the concrete example here in the planner's error. Point three on your outlines. For we humans are great planners. It's part of what makes us superior to the animals is our capacity to plan, to find purpose in our activities, to look to the outcome of what we're going to be doing. It's the sloth, it's the fool who doesn't plan. And so as we approached 2020, and we did some time ago, we had our plans, didn't we? We had our hopes, our aspirations. Some of them were very carefully worked out in our diary or our year planner, as it may be called. Uh, some of the things we were going to do, well, they just kind of, we assumed that we'd be doing them. And other things, well, they're just part of our life. I mean, I've got a job. I, I do the job. I, I'm a student. I do my study. And then, then came the virus. And all our plans went out the window. Together with our sense of control together with our sense of owning our own life, because now I'm told what I'm to do and what I'm not to do. Indeed, they'll put the police on me if I do what I want to do and they don't want me to do. I'm no longer in control. 
James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17, is the great warning for the planner's error. Come now you who would say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever does, knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let's unpack that just slowly, bit by bit, idea by idea. If you have the outline there, you'll see I actually have six headings to unpack it, A to F. Firstly, materialism in verse 13. Spend a year there and trade and make profit. Oh, there's nothing wrong with making a profit. And these people may be only expressing a way of saying, let's go there and do business. But there's something wrong with having profit as the motive, as the guiding light for the Christians in their Christian entrepreneur and Christian endeavour in business. We Christians, we work for the benefit of others and for the benefit of society. Work is an expression of our love for other people. Oh, we are paid for our work that we do, but that's so that we may share the welfare of society, that we may provide for ourselves and our families and not burden the rest of society, so that we can be generous to others who don't have as much as we do, so that we may be generous to the cause of the gospel and the preaching of the gospel. Do give to church missionary society, won't you? very important that we keep our missionaries going at such difficult times for them. But to work simply for making profit is the love of money. Is the love of money that makes service of God impossible. Secondly, these traders were overconfident in, chapter, in verse 14a. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Here's the problem with our year planners. We don't really know what's going to happen tomorrow. Not just this year, next year, next week, next month. We don't know about tomorrow. We don't know about this afternoon. There's a presumption that we will be able to plan and fulfil our plans, that we are in control of the events and the future. But tomorrow can be the car accident or the flu. Tomorrow can be the virus or the lockdown. Tomorrow can be the bushfire or the flood. Tomorrow can be the recession and the retrenchment, we must remember to pray and care for our fellow citizens in whichever country we're in, for those who have lost their jobs and the pressures they're under. It wasn't part of their plan for this year. The wealthier, the wealthier we are, the more arrogant we are and become as we, we get in the way. We, we just assume, we presume that we can control our future. Uh, not simply have a, a year planner, we have a five-year plan. So confident are we. But we do not even know what tomorrow will hold. Because of our pride, 2020 is a vision that we didn't see coming. Which is connected, thirdly, to our thoughtlessness in verse 14b. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. 
Now, here's an important point that I'm going to come back to in a few moments' time, for it's so important to think rightly about ourselves. Remember our quiz a few moments ago. How did you go? One of our friends have typed in and told us that he got zero out of 10. How did you go? There were 40 names that we put up, 40 people who in living memory were world famous, except for one who was a local footballer. Famous they were in sport, in politics, in film, in science, in literature. How many did you know? Uh, How many actually mattered to you? Uh, Some of them have made discoveries upon which our modern medicine and our modern medical practices rely, and yet we don't even know them, though they won the Nobel Prize at the time. Life is very brief. And in one sense, your life, my life, very unimportant. We're like the morning mist hanging around for a little while, then dissolving into nothing and not even remembered. There is abroad this unrealistic, naive idea that we're going to make an impact. Impact is the key word. That in our work, in our study, in our publishing, in our life, we're going to make an impact. We're going to make an impact that will prove that our existence is worthwhile, that will justify our existence, that will make our life meaningful. Well, there in the quiz were 40 people who have made an impact that within a generation we can't remember who they were. Which brings us fourthly to verse 15. And the real problem that the traders were godless. Instead of, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this and that. Repeating the word, if God wills, is not the same as living by the sentiment of God wills. I mean, you can train your family parrot to say, if God wills, but it doesn't mean that you or your parrot are living according to the will of God. The basic problem is that of overconfidence, of thoughtless materialists. They're godless. That's their problem. All their plans and and actions are lived in the fantasy that their life matters, that they are in control of their life, that what they own justifies their existence. They've forgotten that they're creatures made by a creator. They've forgotten that their life is owned by another. They've forgotten that they should love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their mind, and their neighbour as themselves. They've omitted the spiritual side of life out of their existence and filled it with the pride of their own importance, with the pride they boast. Often, and worst of all, is that they can boast to themselves. Fancy <laughs> impressing yourself. What a pathetic state of life. Boasting of the desires of the flesh, Boasting of the desires of the eyes, boasting of life itself. Which brings us to the evil of boasting in verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. We tend to think that murder is evil, but boasting is just 
crass. But boasting lies at the very heart of evil, while murder is simply one of the symptoms of the disrupted heart. For boasting is about self, self in comparison to others, self in rebellion against God. We've become wise in our own eyes now that we've eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember the boast of the man in Jesus' parable? And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample good, goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God says to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. <laughs> Locked up for so many months, we've watched a lot of television lately of, of those kinds of stories of Egypt. I can't tell you how much of Egypt I've been watching. Railway trips in Egypt I've been watching. All the pharaohs laying up for themselves for the future life. And of course, except for one or two graves, all robbed by other people. Hundreds, thousands of other people had to prepare for this one person to die in prosperity and wealth and all the little people there forgotten. And the big man who lies in his pyramid, bereft of all his possessions. And the one that survived through to the 20th century, <laughs> we've ripped them out now. He hasn't got them anyway. Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Forgetting God as we go through life is as sinful as acting against God in our lives. And so, sixthly, omission is as sinful as commission in verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I know I should live God's way, but I'm just too busy. Really, frankly, I'm too busy to remember. I'm too busy to read his word. I'm too busy to follow his instructions. I'm too busy to live his way. It's not my experience that Australians are opposed to God. Very, very few Australians actually call themselves atheists. Even those who don't go to church and will say they're not a member of church, they're not atheists. That's a different thing. It's just that we're too busy. We're too busy for our children. We're too busy for our spouse. We're too busy for everyone. We're certainly too busy for God. It's just that God, God doesn't play any part in my life. Not really. Not, not until I'm in a desperate situation like a bushfire or like I'm drowning. In, then I'll run up a quick prayer to him. But my decisions of life, I don't take to God. God has no part. Hmm. I'm a spiritual person. It's just that. And so in the midst of this pandemic, 
let me remind you of the importance of understanding yourself in the light of God. The virus won't teach you. It's the Bible that will teach you. But the virus has put a, a shot across our bows and caused us to stop, <laughs> to stop at home. And we can choose now to think, to think of the road signs, stop, go back, wrong way. And when we start to think with our Bibles open, when we start to think with our Bibles open, remembering God, James teaches us two things about ourselves. Firstly, that we are a mist of creation. <laughs> a morning mist is a beautiful thing, isn't it? Just hanging in the, in the valley, white and calm, lying still. And, and it's the beautiful feeling of walking through it, of, of this cool, refreshing air. But a mist doesn't last long. And when the morning mist is gone, it's forgotten. It's made no long-term impact. It's important to remember the people, the civilizations that have gone before us. A decade ago, a century ago, a thousand years ago, right back with the Egyptians. It's important to remember they were people like us, breathing and working and eating and playing and loving and caring, just like we are. They were born and lived and died and, and nothing much is left of them or even of their existence in this planet. And you and I, when, when we have gone, well, we'll be like them as well. Passing mists in God's wonderful creation. That's what you are. That's what I am. We're all individually under God's sentence of death. Not just those who die of the pandemic. We'll die of something, each one of us, and we must take it to heart. In Psalm 90, the psalmist speaks to God of his judgment. You return man to dust, he says. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed and in the evening it fades and withers. And so the psalmist addresses God and says, teach us to number our days. Why? That we may get a heart of wisdom. Your life is not forever and ever, but for a short moment like a mist. We will go so quickly. One day I was 17. The next day I was 70. I don't know what happened in between. I can't remember. It's the same as the end of Ecclesiastes 11, the beginning of chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them at all. And yet, frail, feeble as we are, under the judgment of God with the plague and pestilence and of pandemic proportion and the certainty of our own death, we secondly must remember that other thing 
we are a recipient of God's grace. We're not simply a bundle of atoms. We're not simply a highly evolved animal. We're the recipients of God's grace of the Spirit by which we all live and by which Christians are regenerated and become citizens of the kingdom of God to be raised physically to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Humans are so important that God's own son became one of us, lived amongst us, and more the gospel makes clear, died our death. He died for my sin as my replacement, as my substitute. How important in the schemes of God am I? As the recipients of God's grace, I'm eternally more important than this passing mist. But my value lies not in in my achievements or my activities or my acquisitions or my ambitions. No, no, my value lies in the value that God gives to me in creating me in his image, in sending his son to die for me, in sending his spirit to regenerate me, in raising me from death into his eternal life. So it's not the nation alone that needs to turn back to God. It's we individually need to turn back to God. We need to take this opportunity that has been given to us by the pandemic to recall that we are only passing mists in this world. What are we going to make of this life that has been given to us? We must recall that our eternal significance lies in God's grace. And what does it mean in practice? Well, ponder Luther's pamphlet that he wrote and ponder his actions. He acted as an individual choosing not to leave Wittenberg as the elector of Saxony had told him he should. He saw it as a matter of Christian freedom, whether you leave or whether you stay, as a matter of Christian responsibility to stay in order to attend to the sick and to the dying, which is what he did through those months. He even opened up his house to welcome in some grieving families to live amongst his, his own family. He chose out of Christian love and a minister's responsibility to serve his neighbours in their hour of need. For to love God is to love your neighbour, to put their interests ahead of your own, certainly ahead of your trading to make profit. That is, there's nothing new that I've been saying this afternoon. I've been telling you what the scriptures are saying and I can show you to it in a man from 500 years ago in Germany or from last century in Russia. Nothing new. And so I'll, I'll give, my, give the last word to our brother from 500 years ago and then we'll go to questions. Remember, he lived in much more danger than you and I live. You, you get our present coronavirus, you have a 1, 2, 3% chance of death. You get his bubonic plague, you have a 30, 40, 50, 80% chance of death. 
And he wrote, Now if a deadly epidemic strikes, we should stay where we are, make our preparations and take courage in the fact that we are mutually bound together so that we cannot desert one another or flee from one another. See the love of God in the love of others? Phenomenal, isn't it? First, we can be sure that God's punishment has come upon us, not only to chastise us for our sins, but also to test our faith and love. You see, he knew the hand of God in a pandemic. It wasn't just a part of natural court. It was God at work. Warning is part of the judgment. But he speaks of our faith in that we may see the ex and experience how we should act towards God and our love in that we may recognise how we should act towards our neighbour. 